0: Well, it is, uh, it is a great joy to be with you. Uh, we, uh, we love Palm Vista. We have gotten to know many of you over these uh, past six or seven years and uh, count this to be our extended body of Christ, our unity found in Christ. And what we love about you is your love for the gospel and your love for the Savior. And so it is, uh, it is a joy for us always when we get to be here and to have time. With uh, with your pastors and their families, we have come to appreciate them. I know as many of you do as well. Uh, you know this, but Alpino is a gifted expositor of God's word, and we love to sit under his preaching when we come here to be fed and be renewed and and refreshed. And Corey Smidgen is a very gifted shepherd and pastor of the flock we've seen that over the years uh, they love christ they're faithful word men they love god's word they they love the church they love you and they love their families well and we've grown from our friendship and relationship with them and have learned to love them and love their families so uh, it is a joy for us to be here we are thankful to be here and, uh, counted a privilege to open God's Word with you, uh, this morning. We're gonna turn to 1 Peter 4 in just a moment. Let me pray, and then, uh, we'll read God's Word together this morning. Father, we, uh, we, we, we stand before you, Lord, uh, the beginning of this year, gathered together in Christ in worship, exalting you, uh, with, uh, with, with just uh, full hearts, we have received your blessing, and we praise you, and we thank you. And we ask now, Lord, that you would illumine our minds uh, by your Spirit, that we might behold wondrous things from your Word, that by your Spirit you would work in our hearts and our lives for your great redemptive purposes. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles or your Bible apps, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to read uh, verses 1 to 11. That'll be our passage for the morning. This is uh, Peter's book to the church. He calls them elect exiles. They have been scattered uh, throughout the land uh, for the purpose of advancing the gospel ultimately. This is what Peter says, chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the same spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, Well, it is, uh, it is the first Sunday in 2016. It's a new year. And, uh, we, we like new years, don't we? We stand at the doorstep of the year and not knowing what is before us, but expectant and excited about what the Lord might do in our lives, in this place, in your lives maybe you come this morning starting anew maybe maybe somebody's invited you and you've decided you know what i'm going to start i'm going to start this year off by by beginning to, to church and uh, see how the lord might speak and work i think we love new years because there's there's this sense of starting anew starting afresh and so we naturally make resolutions to solve the problems in our lives right to solve or resolve the problems that persist so maybe we resolve to lose a few pounds or eat a little healthier or maybe we resolve to to uh, make some financial changes and clear off some debt or begin to save a little or maybe be a little more generous in uh, in the year ahead with all the things god's blessed us with or maybe me we make relational resolutions and we've identified a particular relationship we know is not right it's broken and so we we resolve to mend it to make it right to perhaps seek forgiveness or or extend grace and forgiveness friends those are all good things but i, I read even this morning that uh, we, we don't keep our resolutions very long. We make them, and usually by President's Day next month, we've, uh, we've gone off course. You, see, you know that the joy of what it is to know the gospel is, is to know that your greatest problem has been solved in Christ. That's the joy of the gospel is, is that the problem of sin and separation from a holy, just, righteous God has been solved in Christ and it doesn't have to be resolved again and again and again. It's been solved once for all time in Christ and his perfect sacrifice on the cross for you, for you, for me. That's the joy of Of the Christian life and the joy of the gospel, even as we make other good resolutions, that's the one thing we can never solve on our own, in our own strength and in our own efforts. And when we begin to understand that and to grasp hold of that anew, in fuller and richer and deeper ways, is when our lives are changed. And I think that's precisely what Peter is after in writing this letter to the church in the first century. See, he's he's seeking to change the self-understanding of these listeners, of these readers, in, in such a way that they might learn to live in a society that is not very sympathetic to their faith. That's what Peter's doing in writing this letter, that they will begin to learn what it is to live for the will of God. That's that's why Peter's writing. Not not for their own will, for their own self, or even the, the culture, if you will, but ultimately for God and for His purposes and for His glory. That's why he ends even this passage with this, this uh, grand doxology, giving glory to Christ and to God through Christ. And, and what Peter has in mind then, because he's writing to a people who, who find themselves in a culture that is not, uh, not very sympathetic to what they believe, Because that's what Peter's doing. It is a very relevant book for us today in the 21st century. Peter has everything to say to us about what it is to to know Christ and to follow Christ in a culture that might be hostile or cynical or, or disbelieving. And I think... If I survey our land and our nation and the various things that have been happening with with uh, uh, great frequency, I think that's the kind of place we find ourselves in as a nation. We We find ourselves changing our views on family, on love, on sexuality, on tolerance, on God. And they're changing rapidly, it seems, over the last... Few decades, and it seems to press the believer, the follower of Christ, in new ways. If if one calls upon God and trusts in His Word, then it's going to create new challenges in the culture in which we find ourselves. So I want to I want to hear from God. I want to hear from Peter to better understand what it is to think about these current issues but even more than the current issues which are always changing the underlying issues of reality that that give voice to the current issues the ultimate issues and what i mean by that is who is god who are we what is what has god done what are we to believe how are we to live those are all ultimate issues and that is precisely where Peter is moving us and taking us in this letter that we better understand those things so that when the current issues arise and there will be many we know how to sort those out because we have we have the foundational issues in place that's what that's what Peter's speaking to and and what what he finds is is this This group, this band of Christ followers, they're being harangued. They're being harassed, maligned because of their Christian convictions. Because they follow Christ. They are incurring verbal abuse, social ostracization, and even for some economic ruin because of what they believe. We've seen that even over the course of the past year. Uh, those who've stood up for their, for their faith in Christ have been maligned by our culture. I think of a photographer in New Mexico or a baker in Oregon or a florist in Washington State, all taking a stand, a principled stand, and being maligned as a result. Or I think even more globally, of, of those who, who own Christ, who belong to Christ, and in a hostile environment, stand up for Christ. I've engaged a group of pastors in northern Vietnam who are bold Christians in a hostile environment. In Vietnam and along the northern border of China, these are remarkable men who, who have endured persecution, persecution, and, and often torture for what they believe and yet they stand firm on the Word of God seeking to advance the Gospel in that part of the world. I'm, I'm told that over 200 million Christians in 60 countries will face some kind of restrictive um, discriminatory persecution by virtue of their faith. We've seen it even in the past year as 21 Egyptian Christians were beheaded because they would not renounce the name of Christ. That's a changing world. That's a world that can find itself hostile to those who call upon Christ. So Peter's asking, how then does the Christian survive, even thrive, in a culture that has become distrusting or disparaging or even contemptuous of Christian belief and Christian faith and conviction? How does the Christian survive in that kind of world? That's, that's where Peter has us in this letter. That's the question he's seeking to answer this morning. What does it look like to live according to God's will in that kind of world? And the first thing he shows us in this passage is it means if we're going to follow Christ in a world that is not sympathetic to the things of Christianity, then we must learn to think differently. That's what Peter says. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin arm yourselves with the same way of thinking what way of thinking is that peter help me understand what it is you want me to think and how to think in that way he says since therefore christ suffered in the flesh That's the way of thinking. It's the way of thinking the mind of Christ that that caused Jesus to be faithful to the very thing he was called to, to his very own death for God's greater purposes. That kind of thinking. And the therefore here is very significant in Peter's flow of thought, in his logic, if you will. Whenever you see, therefore, it is pointing to an ultimate reality of some kind. It is is pointing to something that is ultimate, that is telling us something either about God or about doctrine or about the world or about the nature of reality or sin or ourselves or, or the nature of Christ. And so how we live in a culture that is shifting and changing continually even in, in, in being on a decline, perhaps, how we live is linked to ultimate reality. That's what Peter is saying by that, therefore. And so uh, he wants us to understand what's the logical link that enables us to live for Christ's glory in such a place. Friends, when, when somebody is sharing life with you, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a co-worker, a family member, and they watch how you live. And they ask you, why did you do that? Why why do you think that? Why do you believe that? See, they're asking ultimate reality questions. They want to know who is God? What does it mean to know Him? to follow Him, to live for Him. And they see you doing that, they want to understand that in some way. See, Peter is is moving us that way and therefore shows us the ultimate reality he has in mind is simply this, that Christ suffered in the body. That is, He lived a perfect life and He died on the cross and He suffered at the hands of sinful men. And that truth for Peter means everything then in understanding what it is to live for the will of God and and to have our minds and our thinking shaped and changed by the cross and the realities of the cross. It's precisely what Peter is talking about in the previous chapter, in the last paragraph, in verse 18 of chapter 3. He says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That is the therefore, the ultimate truth that Peter has in mind that that shapes our thinking, that changes our thinking. That Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So the the point here is that in understanding the cross, in in thinking about it, in meditating on it, in in realizing what Christ truly did, it it rewires my brain. It changes how I think, and it's that changed thinking that will result in changed lives. And and that's where Peter will take us. But we need to understand that reality of what it is to see that Christ suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus Christ, the sovereign creator God of the world, the sustainer of the world, everything holds together in Christ. Every breath we take every step we take, every bird that flaps its wings, every creature that crawls on the ground, every living thing is sustained in Christ. That One, the very Son of God who died on a cross, the Lamb of God without blemish, dying as a substitute, taking the punishment we deserve. That Jesus the righteous one dying for the unrighteous you and me. That truth is is the stupendous reality of the gospel. And and it has everything to say then to my day-to-day life and my day-to-day decisions. It's it's not a truth that I can just kinda check the box on. Okay, got that. I got that Jesus thing. I'm good there. Now I'm gonna go I'm gonna go live my life. It, it it's not it's not something we just put on the shelf. It it's not uh just just um an affirmation I give voice to. It actually has everything to say to who I am and my self-understanding, and how I live and how I love. In my office in Chicago, it's just about a block away from a set of railroad tracks, which is heavily trafficked in the Midwest. And and I uh, I remember first uh, getting there and and taking note of those trains going by incessantly. It seemed. Um it it was it was everywhere. I just couldn't couldn't uh not take note of it. And over time it it just became kind of background noise. White noise. I don't hear it anymore. I go to my office, I work and I never hear the trains. For some of us the gospel becomes like that. It, it it's it's something I first took note of and then it just is in the background now. It's white noise. I don't, really, I don't really take note of it in a way that matters in how I think and how I live. So Peter says, arm yourselves then with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves is a military term. It's the idea of a soldier that is, that is armed and ready for battle. There's no no idea of an unarmed soldier soldier for Peter. I I read uh, this week of a colonel who's worked his entire career in the Pentagon. He's never been deployed. And his underlings are astonished that he's actually never been in the field. To them, they can't conceive of a leader who actually hasn't gone and fought the battle in front of them. And somehow, just by virtue of of uh, of structure i think in bureaucracy that's that's his case but there's no idea like that for peter no notion of an unarmed soldier no notion of a christian who is not armed in the same way of thinking as christ the the one who pursued the cross for the good of of all who would call upon christ that kind of thinking is radically different from our world where, where we set ourself and our own desires and our own purposes and our own opinions above everything else. And we pursue our will above the will of God. That's not what Christ did. Not my will, but your will be done. And so we are to think that same way. For because whoever has suffered has ceased from sin. What does that mean? What, is it, what does it mean that if, if you're a follower of Christ today, you know your sin and probably have a greater awareness of it than even that day you came to faith in Christ? How is it that Peter would say that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? Is there some way that I can become perfect in this world is a question that might surface and i would suggest that's not what peter has in mind at all the the whoever here could refer to jesus and and if it does refer to jesus then it means that he is finished with sin that is he is he has conquered it once and for all or the whoever could refer to the christian and if it refers to the Christian, then it's saying that sin no longer has dominion over the follower of Christ. It no longer has ultimate power and sway over the one who calls upon Jesus such that they can live away from those sinful passions and desires. They can live in a manner that is consistent with the gospel and what God has done. See, Changing how we think, thinking differently means we look to the cross, means we look to the past, to what Christ has done, and it has everything to say to us in the present. And to arm ourselves then with the same way of thinking may may even move us in this life, in the here and now, to set Christ above everything else. And I, I have a privilege of working with a lot of young couples who um, who are wrestling genuinely with God's call on their lives. What, what do you have for us, Lord? What would you have us do? And I remember this uh, particular couple I was having a conversation with uh, just in the last few months. And um, they had recently gotten married and they were going to a part of china that was dominated by muslims and it was going to be a hard environment for them and i was talking to them and i said here here you are brand new you're newly married you're about to start life together why would you do that and i remember her response she said to me she said because jesus is worthy Because Jesus is worthy. We're going to give up all the comforts of this life that we have and that we could multiply in the years ahead. We're going to do that and we're going to go where God has called us because Jesus is worthy. He's worth our life and everything we have and our own pleasures and desires we set aside so that we might serve Him where He would call us. Maybe that's maybe that's what God has for you in the year ahead in 2016. Maybe he's going to call you, he, maybe it's just to your neighborhood to be bold in speaking out for Christ. Or maybe it's to another land that you might serve him there. I don't know what he has for you, but but I know that he he wants your thinking to be shaped by the cross so that you might think differently And if you're thinking differently, then you will begin to live differently. That's Peter's point in verses 2 through 6. So as to live the rest of the time, the rest of your days, the rest of your life, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. No longer for human passions, for my own desires the word there means um, over desires inordinate desires excessive and 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 the idea is that apart from knowing Jesus those things will own me and dominate me and control me and and I will live for what I want above anything and everything else. that's the very opposite of what Christ did. And, and those desires, Peter is saying, no longer own you. They no longer dominate you. That you can now live for the will of God and not according to those, those inordinate desires. And, and that the rest of your days now are intended for that purpose. For living that way. For the very will of God. See The contrast Peter is making is life before Christ and life after Christ. That is life in Christ. Life knowing Jesus and walking with Him and following Him. There's a significant contrast between those two lives. And by coming to faith in Christ, believing the gospel, the very things that we've been talking about, that there's this radical change, not only in how we think, but now in how we live no longer according to our self-absorbed passions, desires. See, conversion, putting my faith in Christ, repenting of my sin, asking for forgiveness, and trusting in the perfect work of Christ for that forgiveness, that's that's a changed life. That's real conversion in in putting my faith in Jesus. That always involves a radical change of mind and heart and life. I, I like um, the way John Stott talks about conversion. He's a pastor from England. He's passed away now. But he, he said once that um, every Christian life, every Christian biography has two volumes. Two volumes. Life before Christ and life after Christ. And maybe for some of you, even on this day as you begin 2016, God is starting to pen that first word in the first sentence, in the first paragraph of the first chapter of Volume 2 that speaks of how you've turned to trust in the, the perfect blood of Christ shed for you, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's the beauty of what it is to know Jesus and to have our lives changed significantly and radically. Now, for some of you, I I don't know you uh, well, so for some of you, I suspect that volume one might be a short volume. Maybe by God's grace and kindness, you came to faith when you were young. But for others of you, maybe you're a little more like me that... That first volume reads a little more like a James Michener novel. It's it's, uh, it's pretty significant, but it's not fiction. And it is telling the tale of a life lived on its own, by its own rules and its own standards and its own way. But it's not the final volume. There's a better volume that, that is the sequel. It's the volume that is written by the grace of God for the glory of Christ. And that volume's not finished yet. And maybe for some of you, that's exactly where you find yourself. And you're wondering, how then do I live in this world for, for Christ in a way that changes the, the lives of others? Those I, in, I share life with, I engage with, and I live with, and speak with, and love Maybe that's where you find yourself. Well, I, I want to remind you, you know this and I know it, that um, in coming to faith in Christ, everything gets turned upside down, doesn't it? The things that were priorities for you and were of first import are no longer the same. And the things that never mattered become the most important things in your life the church, the Word of God, an opportunity to worship Christ together in community. Those things become, become first-order priorities. And that's part of what it is to live a changed life. Now I can tell you when I experienced that as a believer, as a new Christian, all many of the relationships that I had didn't quite understand what was going on. And there was a belittling, if you will, or a maligning. That's what Peter has in mind. (laughs) A, A sense that they didn't quite fully grasp the substance and the reality of the change that was going on in my life. And maybe you've seen the same by virtue of what you believe now. You've maybe been exposed to mockery or scorn That was the case for the first century readers of Peter's letter for the church. Friends, there's no greater motivation to fight sin and to endure temptation and to pursue God's will in a godly life than to know that the very Son of God Himself endured temptation and suffered for you. And He lived for the will of God so that you might do the same. And He suffered a horrific death so that you wouldn't have to take that punishment. That will move you and change you to live a different life. And maybe as you begin this year, you're thinking, Lord, how might how might that look differently in the year ahead? Maybe there's this area in my life that I just know I don't, quite have in place maybe there's secret sin and things i don't talk to anybody else about but god knows and i know and and maybe that's the thing that god wants to see change in your life in in the year ahead and so he's showing you even in his word this day what it is to think differently what it is to live differently now, Peter has this interesting saying in verse 6. He says that, that the gospel was actually preached to those who are dead. Maybe, maybe you've read that before and it uh, raises some questions for you. Let me, let me try and simplify it very easily. What Peter has in mind here is, I think, that the gospel is preached to those who are now dead. But they heard the gospel when they were alive, and they believed, and they lived in the Spirit. That's the contrast that's coming out. And they are evidence of those who have been changed and have lived radically different lives. That's who he has in mind. Lives no longer marked by inordinate desires, but now marked by the Spirit living for the very will of God. And that's the contrast Peter keeps in front of us, not only in how we think now, but how we live. And so, if a Christian is going to thrive in a skeptical world or even a cynical world, we not only think differently and live differently, but we must also learn to love differently. That's where Peter goes in verses 7 through 11. He now begins to show us, he's, he's first talking about what is it to live amongst unbelievers, those who do not know Jesus. How do we live there? But now he moves inward and he begins to talk, how do we live amongst believers? How do we live in the church? How do we love one another? And that's verses seven through 11. And the shift is significant. See, if, if you want to learn to love differently, if you want to learn to, to live in a hostile environment, and maybe it's not hostile for you. Maybe your day-to-day experience is largely um, without incident. And I, I would still suggest that what Peter has in mind in learning to live is ultimately what Christ has designed the church for to love in a manner that bears witness to the culture that misunderstands genuine love, authentic love. And, and so Peter begins to unfold for us this picture of love and, and the aspects of love. He says, "...the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers." Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So so what does love look like? What does the kind of new love that Peter has in mind look like? It's it's marked by self-controlled, sober-minded prayer. Prayer for one another. Prayer in your relationship with God in conversation with Him. Prayer as you seek to live for Him in this world. Prayer for others who have joined you in life, in community, in the church who are seeking to do the same. Prayer for those who do not know Christ and you desire to see come to faith to know Christ and to love Him. That kind of clear-headed, self-controlled, sober-minded prayer, that's that's a mark of this loving community. Not only that, but there's a forgiving love in place in the church. See, if, if we really understand the forgiveness that is ours in Christ and what He accomplished on the cross, then it begins to shape how we extend forgiveness toward one another. And that the church should be marked by that kind of forgiveness. And, and let's be honest, that's not always easy. People have hurt us. Maybe they misunderstand something or said something or have done harm to us. In some way, we feel that deeply. It's hard to respond with forgiveness. But if the gospel is alive and active, it's going to start to move us and push us in that way. Maybe not perfectly, but but sufficiently to cause us to move outside of ourselves in a forgiving way toward others. Forgiving love would be a second mark. Genuine hospitality. We've been on the receiving side of that kind of genuine hospitality at Palm Vista. It has blessed us richly, especially when we came in a time of of uh, weariness when we were tired and we needed to be renewed god blessed us by the community of this church and fourthly that that the love that that peter has in mind here is a gracious selfless service that's a mark of this love that That God has given gifts to the church to each and every believer such that we would serve one another for the building up of the body of Christ so that the gospel might go forward into a perishing world. That's the kind of love Peter has in mind. It's it's different from the world, the Gentiles that Peter was talking about earlier in verse 3, who are Consumed with sensuality and drunkenness and lusts and lawless idolatry and debauched living and self indulgent consumption. That's what the world looks like apart from Christ. So to be the church is to love like Christ loved, to submit our desires, our preferences, even. To the greater good of the church and the desires of others, that I might give preference to my brother or my sister in Christ. Out of love for Christ and the grace I've received, that I might be that kind of Christian. That's what it means to be a steward of God's varied grace. His grace that is. That is multiplied, is 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 extended right through the body of Christ as as the gifts God has given are used for the building up of the body. That's that's what Peter has in mind. Love that's self-controlled, forgiving is marked by genuine hospitality and gracious, selfless service. And Peter says, all of this is done. With the end in mind. See, if thinking differently means looking to the past, that is what Christ has done on the cross, and living differently is in the present, right? Loving differently is moved by the future in a very real sense that the end is at hand, Peter says. That is, there will be a day when Christ returns, and his return is imminent. And, and that reality should shape how I relate to one another in the body of Christ. Because it, it will have everything to say to me in that moment when He returns. So if you believe Jesus could return at any moment, then you live with authenticity. We kind of know this in the life of our family. Uh, our kids... Uh, if we leave them uh, to themselves, especially our youngest, um, he seems to know better. If mom or dad aren't too far away, he seems to do a little better. Thinking, you know what, mom, mom could come in at any time. I think I better, I'm better uh, do what I was told. That's that's a very simple way of thinking about about being moved by the reality that Christ will return, and that it means. Everything, and when he returns, he will judge both the living and the dead. See it causes you to live with honesty and integrity and sincerity in the body of Christ, and that 's a genuine kind of love. and when we love differently, we glorify Jesus because we we bear witness to the church and to the world that he is first and foremost in our lives and he is the most ultimate of realities and what he accomplished on the cross means everything in how we love how we live and how we think friends this is what it is to live for the will of god and my prayer for you for palm vista in the year ahead is that would be that would be the spirit that drives and changes and shapes and moves this church in such a way that when we come back next year the, there's not a, there's not a seat to be found because you've loved so many so well that they don't want to be anywhere else but here hearing of the great glory of Christ and the good news of the gospel that's our prayer for you uh, so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ will you pray with me Father we uh, thank you we thank you for the life that you grant us and for uh, the reality of the Gospel, the most ultimate of realities, that that Christ has come and He is is the perfect mediator who has provided everything we need. And your call upon us is to trust in Him, to repent of sin, and to turn to Him in faith and obedience. May we by Your grace, look to You this day. And for some, Father, perhaps in this place who who know what it is to read through Volume 1 of their lives, but somehow Volume 2 has not yet taken shape, would You do that work even this day in granting them eyes to see Jesus and to trust in Him and Him alone for the forgiveness of sin and for right standing before You, Christ. And before You, God. For all of eternity. And even for life in the here and now. That it would be lived in a radically different way. For the glory of Christ above all things. Amen.